بسم الله الرحمن الرحيم الحمد لله رب العالمين والصلاة والسلام على أشرف الأنبياء والمرسلين نبينا محمد وعلى آله وأصحابه أجمعين أما بعد السلام عليكم ورحمة الله وبركاته اللهم انفعنا بما علمتنا وعلمنا ما ينفعنا ورزقنا علما تنفعنا به آمين رب العالمين رب شرح لي صدري ويسر لي أمري وحل العقدة من لساني يفقه قولي Alhamdulillah, we continue tonight with the fiqh of salah and we are currently in the chapter of Masajid. Last week we started the, the bab of, of Al-Masajid. Tayyib, um, so we continue and we are going to complete this chapter tonight bi-idhnillahi ta'ala. The first hadith for the evening reads from Abu Hurairah radiallahu anhu. Qala qala Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wa sallama. من سمع رجلا ينشد ضالة في المسجد فليقل لا ردها الله عليك فإن المساجد لم تبنى لهذا رواه مسلم رسول الله صلى الله عليه وسلم he said whomsoever hears a man announcing ضالة أي ضالة is something that is lost so a man announces something that he has lost an item that he has lost fil masjidi so somebody loses something in the masjid and he announces and he stands up and he says anybody seen my watch anybody seen my keys anybody seen my phone the prophet sallallahu alaihi wasallam is saying if you see or you hear a man saying this in the masjid then you should say la raddaha allahu alayk may allah not return it to him may allah not return it to him because the masajid were not built for this reason that's what the hadith says and the hadith is in sahih muslim because the masajid were not built for these or for this reason طيب. so the first benefit of this hadith alama ibn uthaymin rahimahullah he says that it is forbidden to announce in the masajid for lost property to make an announcement and to say we've lost something or something has been lost and so forth understand because the prophet sallallahu alayhi wasallama he said that if you hear somebody saying this then you should say in response may allah not return it to him and without a doubt if we are going to make dua like this which is like a dua against somebody on the instruction of the prophet sallallahu alayhi wasallama then this must prove that that thing that this person is doing is something that is not good and something that is forbidden. Otherwise, the Prophet would have never responded like this to say, this is what you should say. So this is a clear proof that this is something that is not permissible. So if you heard somebody in the road or somebody in the marketplace saying, has anybody seen my watch? Has anybody seen my phone? Has anybody seen my keys? Has anybody seen my this or my that? What do you say to him? Huh? May Allah return it because this is not in the, the masjid. Understand? The prohibition here is for the for the masjid alone. Then Ibn Uthaymin says, What if somebody else announces and says, Let's say you find he finds a phone and he picks up a wallet or he picks up a key and he says, To whom does this belong? To whom does this belong? Is this the same thing or is it not? Right? The Sheikh says that 
it's not the same thing. It's not the same thing. Because this person is somebody that's trying to do a good deed. He's trying to return a lost item to somebody. As for a person announcing for himself, looking for his own item, his own position, this is not, and he's not, he's not trying to do anything good. He's not necessarily doing a haram act, but the masajid does not vote for this. Understand? But somebody calling out and say, hey, look, I picked up a phone or there's a keys or let's say you take it to the front and you announce over the mic and say, look, there has been a phone that has been lost. Whoever has lost the phone, please come to the imam or come to the Bilal and so forth. Understand? This is something that is permissible and Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala knows best. Um, Tayyip. Uh, if it's found in the masjid, this is okay. If it's found outside of the masjid, then of course it's also okay to announce outside of the masjid. Right? And Allah knows best. Then he brings up another mas'ala and he says, Is what some of the people do today by hanging up lost positions in the masjid permissible? So in some masjid what they do is, if there's a lost key, they hang it up somewhere. Or if there's something that's lost, they place it in a lost and found cupboard or something to that effect. The Sheikh says there's no problem with this. There's no problem with this. In fact, there is some khair in this that people know where to go or where to find their positions. The only problem that comes with, it, with this is theft. That perhaps it, unless you have somebody that's there, you know, that's watching over. But this doesn't generally happen in a, n- a normal masjid, you know. So if it's a normal masjid and this is happening, this might lead to theft depending on where the place is and so forth. So, it's permissible, but it's something that we need to look at. And will it work? Is somebody just going to come in and swipe whatever's there? If this is the case, then that's best to avoid and to take a different means, and Allah knows best. The best option, the Sheikh says, is that the people in the masjid, they should have, you know, uh, they, should, they, should be, they should have an agreement that, look, if something goes missing, that item should be taken to a particular person in the masjid. And this person will be known that if anything is lost, he should be given the item. And if you lost something, you should go to this person. Whether it's the imam or the mu'adhin or somebody on the committee or whomsoever it may be. But it's known that if anything is lost, it goes to Buddha Walid. That Buddha that sits there at the back, he, he deals with all of those items. For example, you understand? Or the Imam. So if you're looking for a lost item, you go to the Imam and say, look, I lost my phone. Did anybody bring a phone to the front? And so forth. This is the best way to deal with this issue. But for somebody to stand up and announce, my phone, my this, my that, my keys, this is something that's not befitting for the masajid, according to the hadith of Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wa The next mas'ala the Sheikh brings up is the issue of a lost child. If you lose your child, can you then announce? Can you then ask? Right? The Sheikh says you can then ask. Because losing a child is not like losing some possessions of yours, like a key or a wallet. A child is something different. That's something on a much more extreme level. In this case, you're not going to rest. You're not going to make zikr. You're not going to, You're obviously going to be frantic until you find your child and Allah knows best. 
طيب so the hadith says that فإن المساجد لم تبنى لهذا that the masajid are not built for this يعني the masajid are there for, this, for certain things only it's not there you know uh, it's not befitting that you do certain things in the in the masajid like calling out for lost property okay um, the sheikh then brings up an issue like he says what about you know presenting food in the masjid is this permissible like giving the people iftar or on the day of Eid you give people something sweet to eat and something you know is this permissible because the hadith says that the masajid are not built for certain things the sheikh says that this is permissible because in this is a good deed yani in this is something that is khair and ihsan you are good, doing good to others you are benefiting others um, and so forth so inshallah this is something that is permissible um, and Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala knows best then the last point in this hadith the sheikh mentions is that it is Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala that returns your goods to you so when you lose an item you should turn to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala alone you should not make an announcement in the masjid and disturb people and make a commotion and you know make people all start to search and look and go turn to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala sincerely and beg him to have your item returned to you because there is nobody that can return the item to you except by the will of Allah except if Allah allows that so Allah can return that item to you without any effort from you without you doing anything and he may prevent you from finding the item even if you make all of the effort in this world Allah says no it's no there is nobody that can overturn Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala's decision understand this so in this case we say look at look at what the prophet said to, to this person look at what look at the instruction of the prophet what's the instruction when you hear somebody calling out and announcing for lost property what should you say may allah not return it to him may allah not return it to him because allah is in charge allah is in control of that lost item of the returning of that item understand so in this case we say turn to allah because allah is in control ask Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala and then you can go and ask the imam look usually did anybody bring something to the front that's one thing but making an announcement is something different calling out in the masjid is something different you understand um, as we learned from the hadith the hadith we did when we did the names of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala when we spoke about Allah's afu Allah's pardoning we spoke about the hadith that Allah pardons people and he is so happy with the person who makes tawbah. He is more happy than whom? What is the one hadith he spoke about? Not the mother that found the child exactly, but it was about the man in the desert. We said there's a, a man that's on his camel with all of his provisions and all food and drink. And he loses his camel. And he comes to a tree and he leans against the tree and he lays there in desperation. And he gives up hope. And he lays there ready to die because he's in the middle of the desert with nothing. And what happens? The camel comes back to him. That joy that that person experiences, Allah is more joy overjoyed when, they, when the slave of his makes tawbah to him. Even though that tawbah does not benefit him. Nor is he in need of the tawbah. You understand? As we spoke about this as Allah's afu, Allah's pardoning. 
But this hadith is a proof of that an item can come back to you without any effort from your side. This man looked to the desert, he went in desperation and he sat there and the camel came back to him. That was a dalla. That camel is a dalla, meaning it was lost. It was something that was a lost animal, a dalla. You understand? So it is only Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala that returns the items to the individual who lost that thing. So the most important thing here is turn to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala and ask him to return it. Um, because only he is able to return the lost property to the person who has lost it. And Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala knows best. Tayyib. And this also proves what the people in Jahiliyyah used to do when they used to use jinn. They used to seek the assistance of the jinn to find their lost property. So when something was lost or stolen, they would call on the jinn and seek the help of the jinn to help them find that property. Because the jinn obviously know certain things and they can travel and they can hear and this and that. So they would be able to find it. But this is something that is completely haram. In fact, it could lead to major shirk. Jinn is shirk. The help and assistance of the jinn is shirk. And Allah knows best. The next hadith is also from Abu Hurairah radiallahu anhu. A very important hadith, just like this hadith is a very important hadith. This hadith here, that Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wa sallam said, إِذَا رَأَيْتُمْ مَنْ يَبِيعُ أَوْ يَبْأَوْ يَبْتَاعُ If you see somebody buying or selling في المسجد, in the masjid, فَقُولُوا then you should say, لَا أَرْبَحَ اللَّهُ تِجَارَتَكَ May Allah not give you any profit in your trades. May Allah not give you any profit in your business. This hadith is in Nasa'i and a Tirmidhi who said the hadith is Hassan. Tayyib. So, what's this hadith proving? That? The masjid is not a marketplace. To do any bay' to do any transaction in the masjid is haram. To do any buying or selling in the masjid is Completely forbidden. Such that if you see somebody doing trades, you should respond to him and say to him, May Allah not give you profit in your trade. May Allah not give you any profit in that business that you are doing. You understand? And Ibn Uthaymin rahimahullah, he explains and he says that it's buying and selling in the masjid that's haram. Both is haram. You understand? And it is both yani the, the offer and the acceptance which is impermissible in the masjid. Because this is what bay' is. A transaction is what? It's an offer from the seller and an acceptance from the buyer. If I sell the cell phone, I offer it to you for 5,000 rand. That's the offer. You now need to accept the offer as the buyer. I accept the offer and I, and I purchase it from you. That's, that's a trade, you understand? Both of this, of these two sides of the trade is haram. The offer and the purchase. If the offer goes through in the masjid, the offer goes through in the masjid, and you accept that offer outside of the masjid, the trade is still haram. Because the offer is part of the trade. It was done where? In the masjid. So we are sitting in the masjid, and I offer the phone to you, and I say, you want to buy this phone? 5,000 rand. That's the offer. We come outside the masjid and you accept the offer and say, look, I accept the offer. I'll take it. You understand? The trade is now, it's, it's completed outside the masjid. 
But where did it start? Inside the masjid. So this trade is haram. And the same vice versa. If the offer is done as we walk into the masjid, I offer you the phone, I say, hey, look, this phone is still brand new, 5,000 and it's sealed in the box, blah, 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 blah. And you say, I'll think about it. And as you make salah, you're thinking about it. And after the salah, we make salah, assalamu alaykum assalamu alaykum astaghfirullah, 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 I'll accept. I'll buy it. I'll take it. You understand? That was now accepted way inside the masjid. That trade is haram. Because both sides of the trade yani, has to be outside of the masjid. So if any one of these two is done inside of the masjid, then we say this trade is la yasih, yani. it is it's not valid. What do you mean? Okay, I'll be at the masjid. I'll pay you the just a handover. Inshallah, if it's just a handover. And that you do the cash outside. But the trade. Look, I would say it's best to avoid. Yeah. It's best to do it outside of the masjid. Just to avoid any uh, doubt. Any type of grey area. Just avoid it. If we didn't know, no sin upon you. But I would say. Just to avoid this, okay. keep it clear from the masjid. It's not the place to do it, to hand over and to you know finish up the trade or you know to give over the money and so forth. If we did it in the past, it's done. We didn't know. Allah forgives us. Yeah, in fact, there's no sin upon us. Now that we know this hadith, we should avoid the masjid at at, at all costs in terms of trading. If you are trading outside of the masjid. No problem. You're not inside the hadith. It says, fill masjid, inside the masjid. A man stands outside the masjid and he sells, you know, some food or he sells some whatever. People sell, lots of people stand outside the masjid and they sell things. No problem. As long as they are not inside of the masjid. As long as they are not inside of the, of the masjid. Um, so the entire trade has to be free from the masjid. The offer and the acceptance both must not be done inside of the masjid is this understood طيب, the sheikh says Mas'ala, another different issue he brings up is a person is in the masjid and he calls another person he calls takes up his phone and he phones somebody and what does he do as he's on the phone he says look i'm selling something i'm selling this flask over here 100 bucks gonna buy it and the person is driving somewhere and he says, yeah, accept. So he did the offer over the phone. But where is he? He's inside the masjid. So this is not permissible. This is not permissible. You understand? So, which means, we are now living in the 21st century. Right? Things are progressing. Trades are progressing. Right? Hence, we need to be a bit more careful. Because trade is not like it was back in the day, you know, hand to hand. Now we do things from the phone. We pay people from our phones. EFT straight. Or we're doing cryptocurrencies on our phones. You understand? This cannot be done inside of the masjid. Because it's trading. Understand? You want to EFT somebody, pay somebody, go outside of the masjid and do that. 
or you are selling something online or whatever the case may be go outside of the masjid and do that but don't do it inside of the masjid because the phone is just another means of trading you understand and Allah knows best the Sheikh brings up another issue and that is uh, like in the Masjid Al-Haram in the Haram you got people walking around with wheelchairs and they rent out those wheelchairs and you pay them this is a trade right he's offering you a service and you're paying him for that this is done inside of the Haram is this permissible it's not permissible it's not supposed to be done he's supposed to be taken outside of the Haram and said look here's the deal let's do the deal okay how much for this Khair, here's the money, and off we go. You understand? Unless, there's a, in the case of necessity, in the case of necessity, there's an old man in the haram. An old woman in the haram, she cannot get out. She's struggling. Or a sick, sick person. And somebody with a wheelchair comes and says, look, I can take you, but you need to pay me because this is my job. So this trade is done inside of the haram. But as an out of necessity, this person does the trade because he's either very sick or it's an old elderly person who is tired and weak and cannot get out of the haram, for example. So in this case, doing the trade in that case over there is permissible because of necessity. Darura. Any necessity, that which is haram becomes halal in a case of necessity. That's the general principle in the sharia. In a time of necessity, that which is haram becomes halal. Even alcohol and those which is haram to eat, if there's nothing to eat, you stranded somewhere, it becomes halal to eat because it's necessity. Understand? Tayyip. Tayyip, the Sheikh then says that it's permissible to do anything else besides trading in the masjid. For example, al-hibah, meaning giving a gift. So if I were to give you a gift, and I said, look, here's the phone as a gift in the masjid. This is permissible because it's not trading. It's not bayim. It's not a transaction. You understand? Likewise, um, paying off a debt. Somebody owes you money. Or you owe somebody money. And you go to them and in the masjid and you say, here's your money. This is not a trade. This is not a trade or transaction this is not haram or loaning somebody money for a debt they in need of something comes to you look i need this i'm desperate you say look yeah i've got a thousand in my pocket that's it that's a loan pay it back to me when you can pay it back to me next month for example that's permissible inside of the masjid because it's not a a trade right as well permissible inside of the masjid even though it's a it's a contract it's so a contractual deal that's going through with a mahar, but it's not a trade. It's not a bay, you understand? So it's permissible and that which is similar to that. As long as it's not considered a transaction or a trade, it's permissible. What about uh, a rental contract? It's still a trade. So this is also not permissible inside of the masjid. Then the sheikh mentions... What about a person who, for example, he is a um, he is a khayyat, meaning he is a what's the word in English? Uh, ya Allah, what do you call this? 
He makes clothing, you know. What's the word? A tailor. He's a tailor, right? And he does his tailor business inside of the masjid. Is this permissible? This is not permissible. Unless he's making his own clothing. Because it's not for? For sale. It's not for trade. So he's sitting in the masjid and he's stitching his own clothing, for example. Or he's sewing his own clothing. This would be permissible. But for him to make the clothing to sell, this is not permissible. You understand? Because it's not a place for, for trading. So the conclusion here is that if, if there's a contract, yani, which is which is mu'awidah, which is basically where there is a uh, where there is a give and a take, where there is a reward, like trading, where you sell something and you make a profit. This is haram to be done in the masjid. But if there's no profit to be made, like you make your own clothing, or you give someone a gift, no profit. You give someone a loan, no profit. Someone pays you back a debt, no profit. No reward. In this case, these things are permissible to be done inside of the masjid, and Allah knows best. Right? So the main benefit here of this hadith is glorification of the masajid. Glorification of the masajid that these masajid are not places for you to go and earn part of the dunya. Rather, it's where you go and earn your akhirah. It's where you go and earn your, your akhirah and Allah knows best. Is there any questions on this hadith? Tayyib, we move on to the next hadith from Hakim ibn Hizam radiallahu anhu. He said that Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wa sallam said, La tuqamu al-hududu fi al-masajid wa la yustaqadu fiha. Rawahu Ahmad wa Abu Dawood bisanid al-da'if. Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wa said in this hadith that the hudud, which is those prescribed legal punishments, they should not be carried out in the masajid. وَلَا يُسْتَقَادُ فِيهَا Nor should there be any retaliation in it. Or the seeking of retaliation inside of the masjid. So what are these hudud that you are speaking about? These legal punishments. Like the cutting of the hand or putting someone to death and so forth. The hudud. Like the had of zina. Because zina is a specific legal punishment for him. A person steals. There is a specific legal punishment like chopping off his hand. A person kills or commits murder. Or qadh. Where you accuse somebody of zina falsely. He gets 80 lashes. If you accuse somebody of zina, say so that person's a zania, she's a zania, she committed adultery. And you, they bring you to court. She takes you to court and she says, he accused me of zina. And the judge says, did you accuse her of zina? Yes, you did. There's the evidence that you did. People heard you or you put it on Facebook or you put it in the newspapers or you said it out in public. So now that you accused her of zina, what's your proof that she committed zina? And what does the Quran say? She must have, or that person must have, four witnesses. Four male witnesses that saw the act of zina taking place. And this doesn't mean that we saw them in a room together, or we saw them sitting in a car together in a dark place, or we saw them this and we saw them that. This means that we saw them committing zina, which is what, 
يعني not kissing or touching they committed we saw them commit intercourse you saw it with our own eyes and even this is so in detail that they have to give the the, the, the testimony and it has to be done that when did you see this happen it must be given at the same time we saw it at this moment at that time at this place this next one the testimony must all add up and so forth and they must be just if they are known sinners may not be accepted and so forth Allah has made it so difficult to prove that someone committed zina. So difficult. In fact, many ulama said they don't know of any case that has ever happened where somebody has come forth and what? And said, we saw this people commit zina. Because zina has happened, it happens where? Behind closed doors. It happens behind closed doors, nobody sees it. If one or two, one person maybe might see it, very rarely, but four people. Doesn't happen, right? Salam Mustain. Allah made it such to protect the honor of Muslimat, or the females and the males. Nobody can just accuse you of zina. So if you do accuse somebody of zina, there's a haddul qadf. This is called qadf. Qadf is when you accuse somebody of zina. And so the Quran says you should provide, or the Sharia says you must provide these four witnesses, and if you don't, then you get 80 lashes. You will be lashed 80 times as a punishment for you. Because, just because you accused, just because of that sin of your tongue. You didn't commit zina yourself because you accused somebody of zina. That's qadf. That's another example of a had in the sharia. One of the hudud, one of these legal punishments and so forth. What does the hadith say? It should not be carried out way in the masajid. You don't lash somebody in the masjid. You don't cut off his hand or his head or whatever the, the case may be. It's not done in the masjid. Right? Why not? Firstly, it's going to dirt in the masjid. It's not the place. The masjid is kept clean and pure. You know? Secondly, there's also a worry that those who are being punished, they might go through something else. Like they might throw up or they might urinate or they might, you know, bleed out and Allah alam. The point is, it's not befitting for this to be happening in the masjid. Understand? وَلَا يُسْتَقَادُ فِيهَا Nor should you seek your retaliation in the masjid. Which is what we mean retaliation? Revenge. Like revenge. Qisas. Allah speaks about the qisas. يَعْلَذِنَ كُتِبَ عَلَيْكُمُ الْقِصَاسُ فِي الْقَتْلَى Al-qisas. It's retribution. So basically, what does this mean? An eye for an, an eye. Al-ayn, wal-ayna bil-ayni. And an eye for an eye. Wal-anfa bil-anfi. And a nose for a nose. Wal-udhuna bil-udhuni. And an ear for an ear. Wal-sinna bil-sinni. And a tooth for another tooth. So the sharia is such that if you take out someone's tooth, it doesn't mean they go and punch you back or, or take out your tooth. They can go to court and they can have your tooth removed. Or if you break their nose, or let's say you cut off the ear, they can go to court and have your ear cut off. And if you kill somebody, a nafsu bin nafs. A life for a life. You kill somebody, you are killed for that. And so forth. There's a lot. This is, that's a whole chapter on its own. We're probably going to get there one day, inshallah, if we get. That far in Bulughul Maram, it's a chapter on its own that deals with the hudud and deals with these punishments and deals with the whole chapter of blood, you know, blood money. 
We, how much do you pay, for example, if you kill somebody? If the, so what can happen is, Sharia law, um, instead of them cutting off your ear, or a tooth, or even a life, right? They can also demand a dia. What's a dia? Compensation or blood money. So what can happen is, they can come to court and say, look, we don't want his life, we want him to pay blood money. And so then the, the, the judge will say, fine, you took this person of a life from one of their family, they want the blood money. So what happens? You now have to pay, for example, 100 camels. When it was less, something smaller than that, it will be less, and so forth. Understand? Allah Alam, that's a, like I said, a chapter on its own. We might get there in the law one day. Um, but this cannot be sought way in the masjid. This kisas is not done in the masjid. Take it to the courts, take it somewhere else, but not in the masjid. Because it's a masjid, it's not the place for these type of things and Allah knows best. The next hadith from Aisha radiallahu anha, she said, Usiba Sa'adun yawm al-Khandaq. On the day of Khandaq, Sa'ad ibn Mu'adh radiallahu anhu was injured. فضرب عليه رسول الله صلى الله عليه وسلم خيمة في المسجد ليعوده من قريب متفق عليه. So the Prophet صلى الله عليه وسلم he pitched a tent for him in the masjid so that he can be easily visited. In Masjid Nabawi, this man was wounded in the battle of the trench, Khandaq. Right? So they pitched a tent in the masjid for him so that they can easily visit him. Understand? Firstly, who was Sa'ad ibn Mu'adh? Do we know about Sa'ad ibn Mu'adh? Sa'ad ibn Mu'adh was told by the Prophet he will attain Jannah. What else? What else? For? That's Ibn Abbas. طيب سعد ابن معاذ رضي الله عنه was one of the great companions of Rasulullah صلى الله عليه وسلم one of the best and he was the leader of the Aus tribe imagine there were two tribes the Aus and the Khazraj he was the leader of the Aus tribe and the Banu Quraidha tribe were their allies so what happened was is this companion was known for his strength and his bravery. He fought in the battle of Badr, he fought in the battle of Uhud, and then he fought in this battle of Khandaq. And there's a number of stories about him. For example, he made tawaf one day alone. Abu Jahl came and said, who's that making tawaf there? And they said, it is Sa'd. And Abu Jahl went to, you know, tell him, you'll be harmed and this. And he wasn't in the least bothered. And he would respond to Abu Jahl. Eventually, he said to Abu Jahl, you won't receive trades from us. And long story. But what happened in this case was, Sa'd was injured. And he was wounded. What do you call this? By his wrist. Right? And as it's known, if you cut your wrist, what happens? You bleed out. Especially if it's a deep, bad cut. What you cut these, what's it, veins? You bleed out, right? So Sa'ad was cut and wounded like this. 
and he was bleeding out on his deathbed basically and he made dua to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala to preserve him he made dua that Allah keeps him alive until Banu Quraidah gets basically what they deserve right and so Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala accepted his dua and his wound temporarily closed up this wound on his arm closed up until the battle between the Banu Quraidah happened and when they were defeated they were placed under the rule of Sa'ad Sa'ad was given the duty to basically decide over them what's going to happen with them and they actually thought that you know we'll just ask for forgiveness we used to be allies and Sa'ad will forgive us but Sa'ad refused forgiveness for them and when he was given this this uh, and we spoke about this we spoke about this not not in fact we spoke about this the other day two weeks back but I didn't go into detail about Sa'ad I just spoke about the hadith of Sa'ad what he said to Banu Quraidah it was when I spoke about Allah's being above Allah's highness we spoke about Allah being al Arsh. and what happened was is Sa'ad gave them instructions and Rasulullah said to Sa'ad you have ruled between them with the ruling of Allah which Allah ruled us from above the seven heavens I mentioned this hadith طيب. this is the incident over here with Banu Quraidah where they were put under the rulership of Sa'ad when we say ruler he wasn't the leader over them but he could decide basically like the hakim the judge over them and when they came he said my ruling over you will be carried out and I'm not going to give, forgive, give in to you people and forgive you for what you have done. Um, and he said that your warriors must be killed. Those who fought the Muslims must be killed. And your wealth will be given, will be shared amongst the Muslims as spoils of war. Ghanima. And as for your women and children, they will be kept captive. This was the ruling of Sa'ad. And, you know, they sought this forgiveness, but he refused because he was firm against them. And this is when the Prophet said, you have ruled through them with the ruling of Allah, that Allah has ruled from above the seven heavens. That was the hadith we mentioned, and this was what Sa'ad actually said to them. So this is what happened, and Sa'ad went back to his tent, and his wound opened up. And he passed, he bled out and he passed away. So his dua was, oh, well, keep me alive until we do justice over these people. And as soon as he gave them the justice, he bled out and he died. That's how Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala accepted his dua exactly as he, as he asked. Until his eyes were cooled. That's what the word he used was, until I am satisfied. Until my eyes are, are cooled over these people. And this is what happened. He went back to his tent. Allah accepted his dua. And he passed away. And then something amazing happened. The Prophet ﷺ was sad over his death. But he also says in a hadith that the throne of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala shook at the death of Sa'ad. 
When this man died and he passed away and he left this dunya, the throne of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala shook. And this is the greatness of Sa'ad ibn Mu'ad radiallahu anhu. And there's a poet that said, وَمَهْتَزْ عَرْشٌ لِلَّهِ مِنْ أَجْلِ هَالِكٍ سَمِعْنَا بِهِ إِلَّا سَعْدِ بِنْ أَبِي عَمْرٍ He says that, basically he says that the arsh of Allah never shook for any other person who passed away that we've heard of except for Sa'ad ibn Amr or Sa'ad ibn Mu'adh radiallahu anhu. So this is some of the virtue of Sa'ad and he was set up in the masjid and he bled out eventually and he died in the masjid in his tent in the masjid of the Prophet sallallahu in one narration it says that the throne shook because of Allah's joy for Sa'ad Allah was overjoyed for him because of the status of his iman and his belief and yes he passed away but he goes on to only that which is better for him you understand? Allah alam so the throne of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala shook at his death and Ibn Uthaymi rahimahullah says he makes dua and he says may Allah gather us with him in his jannah as we've mentioned him here you know we can mention him again bi ta'ala from the benefits of this hadith is that it's permissible at times to put up a tent in the masjid for somebody right especially if it's somebody who, who deserves that like someone with the honor of Sa'ad and the status of Sa'ad, in this case, is something that is deserved for him. But this doesn't mean any sick person, you just put up a tent for him in the masjid. This was something special given to Sa'ad, radiallahu anhu, on condition that this does not, obviously, you know, dirty the masjid and affect the masjid and so forth. The hadith also proves the manzila of Sa'ad, ibn Mu'adh, radiallahu anhu, such that the Prophet set him up in the masjid. Why? So that they could visit him from nearby. Where they were in Medina, they could pop in and check on him all the time. Because of their love and their fondness for this man. This shows us the virtue of Sa'ad ibn Mu'adh radiallahu anhu. It also proves the importance of visiting the sick. The Prophet set him up there so that they could constantly visit him. Because visiting the sick also has a special status in the deen of Islam. Um, and that's some of the benefits of that hadith. The next hadith is also from Aisha radiallahu anha. She said, Ra'aytu Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wa sallam yasturni wa ana anzur ila habashati yalabuna fil masjidi al-hadith muttafaqun alayhi. Aisha says that Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wa sallam covered me. He yasturni, meaning he covered me while I was looking at the habasha. Who is the habasha? The Abyssinian slaves that came to Medina. And she says, يَلْعَبُونَ فِي الْمَسْجِدِ They were playing in the masjid. So, in other narrations, she says, I watched them until I had enough, and then I walked away. But the Prophet basically allowed her to watch a little bit, but he covered her, meaning they couldn't see her. And she could see them until she watched a little bit, until she had enough, and then she left. Understand? So these people, they were Africans from I think it's Ethiopia, Abyssinian slaves. They came to accept Islam in Al Madina and to study the deen of Allah uh, at the hands of the Prophet. And they came and they were people of you know fun and enjoyment. And when they came, they could not control themselves. They saw the Prophet 
they were overjoyed and they started to the word he used in the hadith is play yalabun but what they did was more like a little bit of a dance like a war dance you know understand they took their spears and they and they sh- the the arrows and the shields and they you know traditional type of war dance this is more more or less what they did and also this was during the time of eid this was during the time of of eid so umar radiallahu anhu he initially had an issue with what they were doing and the prophet said to them leave them such that the yahud can know that in our deen is also a time for relaxation let them, let them enjoy themselves a little bit so that, you know, let the Yahud know that in the deen of the Prophet there is time for relaxation as well and enjoyment as opposed to the extremist Yahud, the classical, traditional Yahud, the extreme people, you know, take everything to the, to, the, to the furthest extreme. But in this religion, it's a deen of ease, it's a deen of, it's a time for play, time for relaxation. This is basically what the Prophet is saying. Um, the benefits of this hadith is that at times this is permissible in the masjid. At times this is permissible to have this type of enjoyment with the, with the shield and with the, you know, the, the spear and so forth. This is permissible in the masjid. Do we say that it's a sunnah to do? It's not a sunnah. It's permissible. The Prophet didn't partake. The other sahaba didn't partake. They didn't start doing it. This was something traditional for them. He allowed it. It was a time of Eid. They were overjoyed for what they saw. And that was it. Understand? So it's something permissible, but it's not necessarily an act of worship. It's not a sunnah. And this is where, who uses this hadith? Any idea? To justify false practice. The Sufis, what do they say for this hadith? They use this hadith to say, you can jump and dance in the masjid. So you see the jumping dhikrs that they do, hadra dhikr and raqs. Where they dance and make dhikr and they sway and they jump and they run in circles. And they do all type of funny, crazy, silly things. They use this hadith to prove that it's permissible. The hadith is telling us they were playing in the masjid. They were not remembering Allah. They were not making dhikr. They did this out of joy at the time of Eid. They didn't gather every third, every week in the masjid. To jump and say Allahu, Allahu, or whatever it is that they, they intend on saying. It's completely different. You understand? So this cannot not be used to justify that. It's two different things and Allah knows best. Yes, please. Um, another benefit of this hadith, Ibn Taymiyyah says, is that there's no problem during the time of Eid to do any such things. You know, to have these traditional times of joy, times of play, and so forth. Because the Prophet allowed this. Right? Um, but there must be a reason if it's going to be done in the masjid. You don't just take it to the masjid and have a... There must be a reason for that. Like in this case, they were in the masjid, it just happened. And the Prophet allowed it because let the Jews see that this is that this doesn't mean that the masjid is necessarily a playground. Well, let's take our children to the masjid so they can run and play. That's not necessarily what's being taught here. You understand? If there's a need, if there's a maslaha, a benefit, then that's one thing. If there's no specific benefit for using the masjid, then don't use the masjid. 
you can play elsewhere on the field, go somewhere else, you understand? And Allah knows best. Even uh, Abu Bakr, anhu, he heard two uh, slave girls singing. And he also went to stop them and the Prophet said, leave them, O Abu Bakr, because it's the time of Eid. It's the time of joy, let them sing. Yani, these were small girls, young girls singing. Huh? And it was not again, as we see today, you know, standing on a stage, men watching them singing. They were on their own somewhere singing. He heard and he went to tell them, hey, stop. Prophet said, look, leave them, it's Eid, let them. It's a time of celebration. It's a time of joy and celebration. Right? So the Sheikh says that this proves that the, the perfect deen of Islam, it gives the nafs, it gives the soul some type of freedom. Some type of freedom you know, to enjoy itself and to, to play and to have fun and to relax, which is something natural that every soul needs, right? Um, and not to be strict and, and, and serious all the time. There's a time for play and there's a time for relaxation in the deen of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. But this must be done within the bounds of the sharia. So it cannot be done in a haram manner as well. Right? So that's obviously an important point to mention. It also proves the, the character of the Prophet and how he dealt with his family, that he allowed Aisha, you know, to watch until she had her, until she was had enough, and then she left. But he wasn't over strict on her. As the hadith says, the best of you is the one who is best to his family, and I am the best to my family. The Prophet ﷺ said. So the Sheikh says, this is how a person should be, you know, bring joy to your family, bring happiness to them, make sure that they people that are contented, and you bring happiness to them and peace to them. And not just strictness and strictness and harshness and you know this is not the way of the Prophet As long as again as we said, you're not going to bring about the harm or destruction. So you don't take your children or you don't take your family to a place to play or to relax. But there are men that's going to look at them. Or there is fitna or there is haram taking place or music or this or that. So we need to find places you know, to go where we can enjoy ourselves and relax in a halal environment. In a halal environment. Understand? This is important. And this can be done. It's not impossible. It's not impossible. Right? But there needs to be that balance. There needs to be that balance for the Muslim. You go out, you have fun, and it's time for work. It's time for seriousness. It's time for Quran every day, for salah, for work, for this. And then it's time to go out and relax and de-stress, cut loose as they say. But within the bounds of the Sharia. Understand? So this is an important point to think of. The next point the Sheikh makes is, it's permissible for a woman to look at a man. It's permissible for a female to look at men. Right? Because Aisha anha, she was allowed to look at... She, are we, I'm gonna, we're going we're gonna to put some conditions down. Because Aisha Anna was allowed to look at the, these Habashis, these Abyssinians. And they men. The Prophet allowed it. Right? So the Sheikh <coughs> mentions the ayah in the Quran. In Surah Nur, Allah says, And say to the believing females, Mu'minat, that they should lower their gazes. 
they should lower their gazes. So how do we how do we now reconcile between this ayah and this hadith of Aisha looking at these men? The hadith or the ayah says, Yaghdudna min abasarihin. Min means from or in this case tab'id which means like some of their gazes they should lower their gazes sometimes that's basically what the sheikh is trying to say meaning what that for a, a female to look at a male in general is okay especially if there's a need for that it's okay but the moment there's fitna the moment she feels slightly attracted to him, the moment she enjoys looking at him, the moment she feels he's handsome or beautiful or cute or pretty, whatever the word you want to use, then it becomes haram. Understand? This doesn't mean you can stare at a man unnecessarily. No, looking at something the person's doing, your teacher is lecturing, the chef's giving you khutbah, it's on TV and you're watching the, the khutbah. Understand? These, in these cases we say it's permissible. But the moment you think, hey, that sheikh is, mashallah, you know. And we say, you know what, switch the TV off. Or turn away, look away. Because now it's becoming a fitna for you. And this can happen. It can happen. In fact, this is something that is happening. It's a major problem, especially with social media. There was an article written a couple of years ago, 10, 15 years ago maybe. Um, what was it called? It was called Shaykhi Crushes. Shaykhi Crushes. And I, I think it was a female, I can't recall it, maybe a male, I can't actually recall, who wrote this article. But it was to do with social media, you know, now the whole things have changed, obviously now social media and the mashayikh and the du'at and the students of knowledge, they become like celebrities, you know? So everything's on social media, their lives are on social media, then it's their fashion, then it's their this, then it's their that. Perhaps they're good looking, or they have a nice voice when they recite Qur'an, and all of this becomes attractive to the, to the female. Especially a practicing Muslimah, because sometimes this is what the practicing Muslimah is looking for in her life. That's more what they desire. This is a young sheikh, for example. MashaAllah, he's got good style. He, this is nice, he's this, is that. Oh, he's also good looking. And he speaks well, and he's knowledgeable, and he recites well, and, 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 and. So all those young girls watching his videos, and naturally they become attracted to him, or they, you know. And this becomes, it's a big fitna, more especially, I think, in the West. Not so much here, but it can, not saying it's not going to happen here, it, it doesn't happen here. But this happened a lot more in the West where the da'wah is a lot more on social media and you know the du'at sometimes fall into the trap themselves where they then try to impress the females or so forth and this person wrote this article about this and it was very appropriate and something that's you know it's a reality so the general rule coming back to the point is it, it is permissible but the moment there's a slightest bit of fitna it becomes haram in that case it becomes fard and wajib to lower the gaze and Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala knows best. Um, and this is also a proof Ibn Uthaymin says that men do not have to wear hijab. 
Men don't have to wear hijab because it's permissible for female to look at a man. But if it was not permissible, then they would have had to have worn hijab just like for a female. It's not permissible to look at a female. And that's why she has to be in hijab at all times and Allah knows best. The issue then he mentions at the end is for a man to prevent his wife from looking at another man. Is this permissible? Yani, out of ghayra. Ghayra is that protective jealousy that a man has for his wife where he is uh, jealous and upset that if she looks at another man or speaks to another man or interacts with another man this is something every man is supposed to have every man is supposed to have this protective jealousy that if somebody speaks to my, my, my daughter as well that is actually included in this you become upset if somebody looks at my daughter inappropriately you become upset this is ghayrah ghayrah it's called in Arabic which is protective jealousy and you have this for your family and every man is supposed to have this. If he doesn't have this, then there's a major problem with his iman. And in fact, he is then referred to as a, what's the word in Arabic? As a day youth. A day youth. D-A youth. D-A youth. Day youth. And the Prophet said that the day youth will not smell the fragrance of Jannah. And the youth will not smell the fragrance of Jannah. Yani he won't come close to Jannah. So who's the youth? A person that has no protective jealousy. So he doesn't care that his wife mingles with men. He doesn't care that his wife speaks to men or that men look at his wife and speak to her and, and so forth. Understand? And unfortunately by this definition there are many the youths in the world today. Amongst the Muslims. Where people are intermingling, friends, just a friend at school, just a work colleague, it's fine. Understand? And there's no protective jealousy. Where you become upset. You know, that upset is not, oh, this person is, what's the word? You know, they will, they will say that you are. Allah, what my English. What's the word? On my tongue. I mean that you're not a man. You're not. You, you have no confidence. You no self-confidence. You no trust in your wife. That's what they will accuse you of. They will say, don't be that. Don't be like a weak person. You know. But in reality, the real man is a man who has ghayra. Who has the protective jealousy for his family. You understand? And if he doesn't have that, then he's a day youth. And we see the punishment for the day youth. Allah musta'an. So, the Sheikh says here, if, you know, he sees, if there's any doubt, basically, that if he feels, look, my wife is a bit, or he's looking at, she's looking a bit too much at this person, or she's a bit too friendly with us, in this case, then he has the right to step in. But if it's a general, you know, like you go to the shop, your wife goes in, she gives the shopkeeper some money, she says, thank you, and she walks out. There's nothing wrong with that, you understand? There's no need for a person to become upset with that. She goes to the shop, she asks the guy, how much is this? Okay, shukran, and she walks away. There's no problem with this. You understand? So there's certain things where we, I mean, there's some leeway, and then there's going over, overboard. The moment it goes overboard, the husband is allowed to step in, and Allah knows best. Tayyib. Also, Ramayisha, radiallahu anha, she said that there was a black slave girl who set up a tent in the masjid, 
and she used to come to her and speak to her يعني, at her house, right? This hadith is Bukhari and Muslim. <coughs> so, this proves that the slave girl used to stay in the masjid. She used to come to the house of Aisha, which was right next to the masjid, and speak to her. What does this prove? Why, why is this hadith in this chapter? It's permissible at times to set up a tent for a slave girl in the masjid if she has nowhere else to stay. If she has no, I could say, master. In those times, you'd have a master and a slave. Right? If she doesn't have, then it's permissible um, for that. It's also permissible to talk in the masjid. She's to come to Aisha and speak to her. Right? This doesn't mean you can ghiba and talk nonsense. And The asal in the masjid is dhikr, Quran, so forth. But at times to sit and relax and have, you know, a general discussion where there's just discussion between friends. No problem with that uh, as long as it's not excessive and haram. The next hadith from Anas radiallahu anhu that Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wa sallam said Spitting in the masjid is a sin and to expiate that sin is to cover up the, the spit. Right? Again, this in the time of the Prophet the masjid was sandy and with gravel. So to cover it up was very easily. In today's time, if you spat in the masjid or you sneezed in the masjid, let's say, to cover it up means to clean up behind yourself, to clean the carpet, understand? But to spit is haram. To sneeze is no problem, out of your hands. But to spit in the masjid is haram because it goes against having the proper respect for the masjid, right? Even if you intended to clean it up, which is the expiation, it's still a sin in the first place. Understand? It's still a sin in the, in the first place. And Allah knows best. Um, also from him he narrated that the Prophet said The time or the hour will not be established until people start to boast about the masajids, about the mosques. Right? What does this mean? People will boast, you know, our masjid has this carpet, and our masjid has this type of mimbar, and our masjid has this type of sound system, and our masjid is so big and it can accommodate so many people, and we got this type of taps, and this type of shoe racks, and this, and that, and Allah Musta'an. So they start to boast and brag about the masjid, their masjid that they attend, or their masjid that they, their family built, and so forth. The Prophet is basically speaking against this. This is not befitting for masjid. Right, um, the hadith also proves that the hour will be established eventually. That the hour will be established. Anybody who denies this commits kufr because he denies the Quran and the Sunnah. It also proves that what is best is that there's no bragging when it comes to masajid. The masjid should be something simple, something you know, humble. It's built for the sake of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, and that's it. And not you know, to make the masjid fancy and extravagant. And so forth. This is not the intention or what the masajid are built for, and Allah knows best. Right? And the Sheikh says this also refutes some people when they say, You build your, mas- your, your, your car or your house like this, and you buy such a nice car, but kick masjid. And you don't do the same with the masjid. And this, this is not actually a problem. Because the masjid is not supposed to be extravagant. It's not supposed to be extravagant. If you make your house nice because you can afford it, alhamdulillah. It's not a fault that you make the masjid the same. You understand? It's not a fault that you make the masjid the same. 
The next hadith from Ibn Abbas anhuma, he said that Rasulullah said, Ma umirtu masajidi. He said, I was not instructed to build high, lofty masajid. I was not instructed to build high, lofty masajid. Right? And Ibn Abbas he also said that, that you will come, you will adorn your masajid just like the Jews and Christians adorned their, their places of worship. You are going to adorn people, this ummah is going to happen. That they will adorn the masajid just like the Jews and Christians adorned their places of worship. Understand? It's already happening. Like you said, like the previous hadith spoke about competition. This is also happening. The own masajid in Cape Town. If they do something, the next masjid must do something similar. And if they get a certain type of mimbar, they must also build this type of mimbar with gold bars. And they get this type of sound system, we must also get this type of sound. Because that masjid, and it becomes like this. You know, it becomes a competition for which masjid committee can have the best masjid. Or the most extravagant masjid, or the most beautiful masjid, and so forth. Losing the intention of the, you know, the actual intention that the masjid is supposed to bring Allah Musta'an. Um, so benefits of this hadith is that again what's preferred is that the masjid is something simple a simple structure doesn't have to be adorned doesn't have to be too fancy nothing right as long as it looks clean it's neat that is sufficient as a masjid you understand that is sufficient as a masjid and then the sheikh again spoke about you know the rakams and writing on the walls we spoke about this before uh, he says all of this is impermissible he says in fact it's a bid'ah to write on the walls and to put up these type of rakams and Allah's names and all these things. He says it's an innovation. We did before this, as we said, there's no sin. But you should go and put a stop to it. You should go and remove it. And Allah knows best. Um, as for the minara, again, he says not from the sunnah to actually have a minara. But nowadays he says to distinguish, to distinguish the masjid from other buildings, people who's not known in the area can know that's a masjid, perhaps it's okay to have a minarat, right? Uh, but again, it doesn't have to be super high or super extravagant or super flashy. As long as it's something simple, that's, that's it. There should be no israf, no extravagance, no waste, no wasting done on the masjid. This is important on what these hadiths are speaking about, yes? I would say go and advise them, at least. Go to those in charge of the masjid and say, look, uh, this is what we gave, but we came to learn, it's not permissible. Can you perhaps have it removed, please? If they say no, you've done your duty. The sin, يعني, your obligation is off of your back. And Allah knows best. طيب. From Anas, anhu, two more hadith, that Rasulullah said, عُرِضَتْ عَلَيَّ أُجُورَ أُمَّتِي the rewards of my ummah was shown to me. Even even the dust particle that a man takes out of the masjid. Yani, even that little bit of dust that you move out of the masjid, that you take out of the masjid, is a reward that has been shown to the Prophet. Meaning, the more you clean the masjid, the more reward you get. The more you clean the masjid, the more reward you get. So the person who sweeps the masjid who vacuums the masajid, he gets a lot of reward, insha'Allah. The last hadith in the chapter and for the evening from Abu Qatada, anhu, that Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wa sallam said, إِذَا دَخَلَ أَحَدُكُمُ الْمَسْجِدَ فَلَا يَجْلِسْ حَتَّى يُصَلِّ رَكَعَتَيْنِ مُتَّفَق
when any one of you enters the masjid, he should not sit down until he has prayed two rakaat, until he has prayed two units of prayer. Right? What is the two units of prayer? Tahiyatul Masjid. Tahiyatul Masjid, the ulama refer, it to, refer to it as Tahiyatul Masjid, which is basically means the two prayers to greet the masjid, the two rakaat, which is to greet the masjid. So when we enter, this is the thing that we're supposed to do. We're supposed to pray two rakaat. The main issue here is, is this fard or sunnah? Is it fard or sunnah? Sunnah mu'akkada, tayyib. The ulama differ. Some ulama said it is fard, and some ulama said it is a sunnah. Meaning if you did it, it's reward, but there's no sin upon you if you do not pray it. If it's fard, we say there's reward, but there's a sin on you if you purposely left off the tahiyatul masjid. Ibn Uthaymin, rahimahullah, is of the opinion that it is fard. He is of the opinion that it is a fard to play tahiyatul masjid. The proofs, we'll run through the proofs quickly. Those who say that it is wajib, they say it's wajib because the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wa sallam, he said, you should not sit. It's a prohibition. You should not sit when you enter the masjid until you have prayed two rakat. So it's a prohibition. And the general rule of prohibitions is that it is for, it proves that the, that the ruling is haram. Understand? The Prophet said, don't sit down until you prayed. So this is a prohibition in sitting without in leaving of the tahiyyat al-masjid, hence they say it's haram. Another proof they bring is, the Prophet was on the minbar giving a khutbah on the day of Jumu'ah. And a man came in and he sat down. This man came and he sat down during the khutbah. And the Prophet stopped the khutbah and said to him, Asalait, have you prayed? The man said, no. He said, Qum fasalli rak'atayn watajawwaz fihima. The Prophet said, stand up and pray to rak'at. Stand up and pray to rak'at. The point here is, he stopped the khutbah. He stopped the khutbah to tell the man, stand up and pray. And as we know, listening to a khutbah is, is fard. And you're not supposed to do anything when the khutbah is happening. When the khutbah is on, you're not allowed to speak. You're not allowed to greet somebody. You're not allowed to do anything. You're only supposed to be listening to the khutbah. In fact, the hadith says, if you speak during the khutbah, then you nullify your, your, the reward of your Jumu'ah. Huh? And again, most people don't know this. Some people talk during the khutbah. And we're not talking about the English talk. We're talking about the Arabic khutbah, right? They talk during the khutbah and they greet each other and they rectify each other and they tap each other. This is all not permissible. But in this case, what happened? The Prophet stopped the khutbah said to the man, did you pray? He said, no. He said, stand up and pray. During the khutbah, you don't greet. English talk is not a khutbah. English, that's a nasiha, it's just the English talk. The khutbah is the Arabic, that is the main part of the Jumu'ah. That and then the salah. During that time, you're not allowed to speak. Understand? You're not allowed to speak. Um, the hadith mentions that, I think it was Ubay ibn Ka'b and another companion. His companion asked him something and he ignored him. And he asked him something about the ayah, the tafsir of the ayah. He asked Ubay and Ubay ignored him. And after this Ubay, said to him, you basically destroyed your Jumu'ah. And he went to the Prophet and he said, and the Prophet agreed with Ubay, that if you speak in the khutbah, you can destroy your khutbah, you can nullify your Jumu'ah. Meaning, this, and you get no reward for the Jumu'ah. And Allah knows best. But in this case, what happened? 
Have you prayed? Now stand up and pray during the khutbah. So they say it must be wajib because of this. Um, that's some of the proofs that they mention. As for those who say it's not wajib, they bring a number of proofs as well. They say that the Prophet sallallahu alaihi wasallam, he said in a hadith, he informed one, one, one sahabi that there is five salat to be prayed day and night. And the man said, is there any other salat that's fought upon me after these five salahs? And the Prophet said, no. Except that it is a sunnah. You understand? So they say, well, the Prophet said there's no other salah that's fard. So Tahitul Masjid is not a fard. The other group responds to this and says, no, this, we don't agree with this proof. Because the Prophet was speaking about something specific. He was speaking about the five daily prayers. There is no fard salah that is daily upon you. Like Witter, it's not fard, even though it comes every day. Understand? It's not fard. Only the five is fard. But that doesn't mean there's no other salah that's fard. At times there may be another salah that is fard upon you. And they say that Tahiyatul Masjid is like this. Another example is if you take a vow, a promise and a vow, Allah will make salah tonight, Qiyamulayl. That's not fard upon you. Additionally to the five, you understand? And they, this is how they argued over that. Um, also the Prophet came to Jumu'ah and he went straight to the khutbah and he didn't pray two raka'at. So the argument here is, he didn't pray, he just started the khutbah. The response is, but he didn't sit down either. He went onto the mimbar and the only time he's going to sit is between the khutbahs, which is very quick. And then he stands and then he goes to make salah. So that counts as a tahiyatul masjid as well. So they don't accept that as a proof. And like this is another of even, number of evidences that those who say it's not found use, the others argue back and say, that's not a clear-cut evidence. It's, we can reinterpret it to, 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 you know. For example, they say when the Prophet entered the Haram, he went straight to Tawaf. Didn't pray Tahiyatul Masjid. The argument back is, he didn't sit down. After the Tawaf, he's going to pray to Raka'at. That can be like a Tahiyatul Masjid. And so forth. So the Sheikh says what's, what's important is that the opinion that it, that it is fard, is a very strong opinion. It's a very strong opinion. And if you fulfill this all the time, you're fulfilling a fard. And if you missed it, you might be sinful. Krishna and Shaykh is on, um, if it's a fard, right? Um, you can join, uh, we're gonna, that's no problem. Because you're not joining the two, you see, that becomes like your tahiyatul masjid. That becomes your greeting of the masjid. That fard. You understand? It doesn't have to be the specific two. It can be any salah basically as you greet. But don't sit down. Are you with me? Of course, your niyyah is there to pray the fard, but it's also like a tahiyatul masjid. This is also to greet the masjid as I entered. So if you perform a fard and then you perform a sunnah, so that means you can't, so you don't need to make niyyah for tahiyatul masjid and the sunnah together after the fard. Now the fard will count as a tahiyatul masjid. So you don't have to have it again after, no, definitely not. Um, tayyib, almost done. Or... Yeah, look, it's a joint niyyah in your heart. This is my fard, yes, but one time a tahiyatul masjid. 
Right? We spoke about this issue also that Sheikh mentions that these two rak'at can be prayed anytime during the day. Even during time which is forbidden to make salah. That after Asr, after Fajr, Zawal, you can pray the Tahir to Masjid in that time. We spoke about this issue previously and Allah knows best. Um, spoke about that. Also this proves the glorification for the Masjid once again. That every time you enter you need to make salah. This shows the status of the Masjid. Understand? Shows the status of the masjid. But if you enter the masjid and you don't have wudu, so let's say you just walk in the masjid and you had no wudu, can you pray? No, you can't. So in that case, it's not found upon you. So we don't say to the person who enters, Cupidic or make up dust and wudu so that you can make two rakats. Right? If he doesn't have wudu, he says not found upon him and Allah knows best. Um, what if you sit? Before you pray tahiyyat al-masjid, can you still stand up and pray it? The hadith says no, but the hadith of the man who entered the khutbah, he sat. The Prophet said to him, stand up and pray. So we say that you can, but only if it's a short period of time after you sat. So you don't sit for a long, half an hour, okay, stand up and make tahiyyat al-masjid. And you don't sit purposefully either. You say you forgot or you got busy and you sat. Understand? But if you did, it's a short period of time, you stand up, you make it, if it's too long, it's gone, and Allah knows best. Tayyib, and what if you enter the masjid, pray tahit, and then you go out the masjid and come back in? Do you pray tahit the masjid again? If a long period of time has gone by. If it's a short period, you went out to the car, you came back, you don't pray it again. But you got out the car, you went home for 15 minutes, came back after 20 minutes, then we say pray again. It's a very short period, don't pray if it's a long period. Pray and Allah knows best. That's the end of the chapter. Alhamdulillah, Rabbil Alameen, wa sallallahu ala nabina Muhammad wa ala alihi wa sahbihi ajma'in. Subhanakallahumma wa bihamdik. Ashadu ala ilaha 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 ilaha